1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon.
2: My name is Brian Tofer, principal architect of Tofer Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, please feel free to send me an email at btopher at toverarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Carla Yanni to talk about her book, Living on Campus, and Architectural History of the American Dormitory. Carla is the professor of architectural history at Rutgers and the second vice president of the Society of Architectural Historians. So Carla, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here.
2: Pleasure's all mine. So, before we begin, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm an architectural historian. I am a social historian of architecture. So, I look at uh, buildings, ordinary buildings, as well as architect design buildings, Uh, not so much in terms of style or um, great men, but more uh, to understand what buildings meant at the time they were produced how users use them, how they made meaning out of buildings.
2: Uh, Very interesting. And that kind of will lead right into our first point. So the book, very clearly, it is about dormitories. And you raise a very valid point that a very large percentage of us have spent quite a few years living in that. But most of us, myself included, probably don't know much about them at all, their history at the very least.
1: Right, it's a kind of kind of like the purloined letter. It's uh, hidden in plain sight. I think many of us walk past them. We have lived in them, and a lot of people have opinions about about the architecture of residence halls. But this is the first book length study of the building type.
2: Absolutely, and that and so yeah, we'll start right there. You had mentioned, you know, building. You're not as focused on the building type; more of the social use. And so in particular, one thing I found interesting that you've talked about a few times in the book is that dormitories, even though they've always been around, they've never necessarily been built just as a place for students to live. They're actually more of an intentional thing because of the interaction between students. I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that a little more.
1: Right. Well, especially in the United States, um, the ideal of the collegiate experience. So the uh, the concept that college is not only a place where you gain knowledge, but a place where you make friends, build a network, uh, perhaps meet a future spouse, make connections that will be advantageous in business. All of that is tied into the American conception of university, which is why the residence hall, Holds such a special place in American colleges and universities. Um, This is also true of Oxford and Cambridge in the UK, but for the other ancient universities of Europe, they didn't provide housing for the students. So it's a particular, um, it's it's particularly associated with Oxford and Cambridge and this concept of, of residential life.
2: Absolutely. And you, you touched upon it. And so, you know, so it's not just the social interest. There's sort of the, I guess we'll say the negative s- history of it as well, that there was kind of a bit of an elitist, almost sexist undertone to a lot of that social interaction and preparation. I know in particular, in the second chapter, it goes into very much depth on even when women were kind of brought into the college atmosphere, it was not the same experience. Even their dorm life was not the same experience intentionally. <laughs>
1: That's right. So um, universities in the Midwest, which tended, the large state university, universities went co-ed very early, 1870s right. or so. And the first students, female students on campus really had a rough time. Um, and so the deans of women, that was a profession that came into being uh, at, at, in order to help uh, Female students at coed universities cope with this overwhelming environment. The deans right. of students felt very strongly about building residence halls so that the women would form bonds with one another, have a safe place to live, places to study. Uh, the dean of women um, often had often lived in the in the residence hall, or there was a sort of matron who lived in the residence hall, and in many cases, the women's dorms became the social hub of the campus because this is before the era of student centers.
2: Right. Uh, absolutely. And you actually mentioned that it's interesting because there's the idea that the men and women were separated, but you actually touched on it, that the most of the male dorms had almost no common space. And that's intentionally was put in the female dorms for of a somewhat more again, we'll say sexist reason that the idea was they would be trained to host.
1: Right. Often the concept was that the women needed to develop skills in hospitality anyway. (laughs) I mean, although they were at the vanguard of their time, they were getting college degrees when that was very rare. The expectation was still that they were going to become wives and mothers and that they needed to learn how to be gracious hosts. And also, in one particular case that I study in detail, the Martha Cook building at the University of Michigan, the yes. man who donated the money for that building said that the one of the purposes of the building was to civilize brutish young men. <laughs>
2: uh, yes, and that was a great case study. And you had mentioned the idea of training, you know, these college students as wives and mothers. And so that actually led into so- a somewhat literal definition of the buildings Whereas instead of the double loaded corridor that most of us are familiar with now, they actually had the very intentional design of cottages. And I was wondering if you could talk about how, you know, this idea of the program space, how it's being used, actually changed the standard. You know, dorm building for female students.
1: Right. That's that's a complicated history that was laid out very clearly by a historian named Helen Horowitz, who wrote a book on this subject um, in the nineteen nineties. And she talks about the way that large congregate residence halls, like the main building at Vassar, uh-huh. were replaced with cottages uh, later. For example, when Smith was built, Smith College, they built cottages, and Wellesley College started out with a large congregate building, but later added cottages. And the cottages were supposed to replicate family life. They were intended to be normative or leading to a normative life after college, whereas the large congregate building was too much of an institution. There was also a fear that having all these young women cooped up in one large building would turn them into lesbians, which wasn't exactly (laughs) the way they phrased it in the 19th century. But that's definitely what they meant when they said things like, um, you know, lead to unnatural vices and that sort of thing.
2: Absolutely. Which is an interesting departure, because I know you had made the point that early dorm buildings are very much modeled after convents and monasteries, that idea of keeping genders together. And like you said, at the same time, there is that fear of slovenliness in the men and homosocial activities in the women.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's true. There's a kind of uh, pendulum swing. At some points in the history of college dormitories, there's an argument that having too many people in one building is too much like a monastery. It's, <laughs> it's not normal. It's not the way people live after college. But at other times in the history of American dormitories, people argued, oh, it's an ideal intellectual environment where you learn to get along with your fellow humans and you stay up late and you know discuss philosophy <laughs> in front of the fireplace.
2: Absolutely. And the somewhat realistic the reality that as much as everyone would love to create separate colleges, that just kind of was not in any college budget, especially at that time.
1: Right, and also the cottages are harder are, are not as easy to manage surveillance as a double-loaded right. corridor would be. So the Martha Cook Building, which I mentioned a moment ago, did employ the double-loaded corridor and a single entrance. Well, There was a secondary yes. entrance, but it wasn't open very often. But there's a front entrance, and you go in, and the matron or someone else is sitting at a desk and. And there's one main entrance, and all of the public spaces are on the ground floor, and the student bedrooms are above. So there's no way to – it's not a porous building. There's no way to come and go without going past someone. Whereas residence halls built for men at the same time were very porous.
2: Absolutely. You had mentioned the difference kind of between the two standard archetypes, you know, the double-loaded corridor and the entryway or staircase building.
1: Right. The entryway or staircase plan is known uh, to people from Oxford and Cambridge and anyone who's gone to Yale or Harvard, uh, Rice. There, there are a lot of universities that employed it. It means that there are um, entrances off of a courtyard and the courtyard entrances are private in the sense that only people who live in that building can get into the courtyard. But right. the rooms are off of a staircase Not off of a long corridor. And that means, first of all, it's hard to employ or or place a lounge or a shared space in those staircases. In fact, the students often lounge around in the staircases themselves. Um, And it means people, originally men, could come and go quite easily. There were so many entrances and exits that you people were not keeping track of them. That was not considered appropriate for women um, who needed both protection and uh, a sense that they could not be trusted to to come and go <laughs> at will.
2: You had mentioned almost surveillance that they needed to know that they were being
1: surveilled. Right, right.
2: And so, and, and, and very and great to talk about it. And so moving forward, it was an interesting point that so after all this, you had mentioned the pendulum going back and forth. There was kind of a steep downturn. But then the 20th century, there was a significant, a much more dramatic increase in, you know, dormitories and students.
1: Yes. One way to look at it is uh, to take this story back to the Morrill Act of 1862, which is when universities shifted their curricula to include mechanics, which we would call engineering, right. um, agriculture, and military sciences. And this was funding that came through the federal government in the form of the Land Grant Act. Um, that caused universities, the bigger ones, the ones that got the land grant, to scramble to figure out how to supply the spaces that were needed to fulfill the needs of the curriculum. And right. they stopped building residence halls, Also at that time, fraternities began to build houses for the fraternity members to live, often funded by recent alumni and by the boys themselves who paid fees. And the residents, the the fraternities filled the need, the residential fraternities filled the need so that the colleges did not have to build residence halls. So, this would be from about 1870 to say 1910.
0: Right. slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: And uh, that's an interesting point when you bring up the fraternities. You know, you kind of mentioned that, you know, the, the resurgence in dorms was the college's responses to fraternities. And it, it was a little surprising that, you know, it's no surprise to anyone that fraternities are a somewhat controversial topic. They have their issues with a lot of colleges. And you bring up the fact that even back then, there was an issue that, is, was, that we're still dealing with now.
1: Right. So to complete that thought, when deans of students, these were the people who were charged with the well-being of students, both men and women, when they perceived, and it was clear, that fraternities dominated all of the social life on campus, mm-hmm. for example, you know, we might think of fraternity men as Playing sports, but in the 1910s, they also were um, editor in chief of the newspaper, and they ran the glee club and the banjo society, and all kinds of other, all kinds of other things that were part of student life back then. And they really pushed anyone who was not a fraternity brother out of the running of the of the college, out of student life, and there was a. hierarchy that developed where the fraternity men who tended to be Protestant, um, of course, white, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: pushed Jews, African-American students, if there were any, um, out of the sort of all of the socially beneficial parts of college life. So deans of men thought, well, the way to solve this is to build residence halls that are as attractive as fraternities, with all the amenities of fraternities, but that are for the ordinary student, that are for students who don't want to be in a fraternity, and who could be randomly thrown together and yet still make those friendships that last a lifetime.
2: Absolutely. And you had mentioned that they you know, spent a lot of effort to really design this attractive, inviting kind of dorm halls. And so, you know, then the next period we'll kind of talk about, it seems that almost every architectural building type has a moment where very utilitarian modernist structures have a quick turn in the spotlight. And and so you go into a lot of detail about, you know, the modernist towers and kind of the backlash that they, for the most part, received.
1: Right. The last two chapters of the book look at the high rise or skyscraper dormitory, Yes. and the backlash against it in the form of residence halls that were meant to imitate villages or italian hill towns so as you correctly point out every building type has a watered down version of <laughs> an of a of an elegant international style uh, skyscraper whether it's a, a dormitory or a hospital or um apartments or any, anything else we could choose to name. So there are expensive and beautifully appointed and carefully thought out modernist buildings in all, in, for all of those functions. And there certainly are some for residence halls, but there were also a lot of cases where uh, utilitarian, relatively inexpensive skyscrapers went up quickly to fill the incredible um needs of housing after world war ii because of the gi bill
2: absolutely and you you talk about that as one of the more significant increases in students kind of the idea that smaller classrooms evolved into the giant lectures halls that most of us are pretty familiar with now
1: yeah that that was something that really flummoxed me in my research because at rutgers in 1955 when when Rutgers built the river dorms, which are three slab-like yes. modernist uh, boxes on piloti along the side of the river, they put classrooms in the, in the basements, the lower two levels of those skyscrapers. And originally those classrooms had glass windows on the side near the canal, near the river, and a view of a park on the other side of the river. Now there's a highway that goes past there and everybody hates those (laughs) classrooms. But what's strange about the classrooms is that they were not very large. They were square and they were meant for about 25 students. And so even at this moment of an increase in the number of undergraduates, they hadn't quite come to the idea that a person lecturing to 25 is the same as a person lecturing to 3,000. Right, so I think that comes a, a little bit later.
2: <laughs> and 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 so you 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 hinted as well with Hilltown at Yale, but you know your your final chapter kind of goes into you know we've been we, especially we talk a lot about the double loaded corridor you know it's just, just kind of these utilitarian buildings, but I was wondering if you could go into a little more detail. There has been I won't say recently, but there is you know the ex, we'll say experimentation of new types and styles and the idea of of trying to get past what has been around for 300 years.
1: Well, the, right. The book, and the book ends in 1968, which was a time we all, first of all, it was 50 years, you know, right before the book was published. So that, that means someone else can have their crack at the the last 50 years. (laughs) Um, It was also a time when the relationship between students and administrators and youth and adults changed dramatically Yes, uh, with every kind of understanding of youth culture changing drastically at the end of the 1960s. And it also made a a, a good place to end the book because 1968 was when the California Regents approved Kresge College, which was designed by Charles Moore and Bill Turnbull of MLTW Architects. And it is as far away from the skyscraper dormitory as you could get. The students were involved in every part of the planning. They, to instead of regular programming meetings where the clients would meet with the architects, they held group therapy sessions um, to (laughs) discuss their feelings. Um, And what what it all boiled down to was the fact that the students did not want to feel like a cog in a machine. They wanted individuality. They wanted to cook their own food. They wanted to choose their own friends. They, they wanted to get away from the corridor, which by this time had come to represent institutionality. Yes. Yeah. Um, doors open directly to the outside. There are balconies. There's a compressed narrow streets, little plazas. So that's the way in which it's intended to imitate an Italian hill town with that um, lively exterior pedestrian space.
2: Absolutely. And you had mentioned that, you know, youth culture really wanted its own individuality and because there is the reality and I've, we've, we've talked a lot about particularly the surveillance of its female students, but there's also the reality. And we're dealing with this pretty, it's pretty relevant today's time as well. The idea that a lot of some of the student housing, you know, it was created that you actually took, take a quote from you. It existed to establish hierarchies within the students.
1: That's right. It's on the one hand, college dormitories existed in order to build fellowship among the students, but inevitably they also reinforced social hierarchies. Yes. whether it was um, that white students wouldn't live with Native Americans at Harvard, so they built a separate building for the Native Americans, fraternities that refused to admit Blacks. We have a case at Rutgers where, since the African-American student's couldn't get into the existing fraternities when they first came to Rutgers, the Jewish fraternities accepted African-American members. And that lasted for a couple of years until the African-American students founded their own. Um, There's sort of no way to build a communal housing without letting some people in and leaving some people out. I mean, you can also find this history in in redlining or in apartment buildings in Florida that specifically said no Jews. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm relying on the scholarship of other architectural historians to point out that this, anytime you're building a community, which sounds very nice, you're also excluding someone.
2: That's a fair point. So, uh, so thank you for meeting with me today. And so, before we go, I was wondering—you know—you do, you are very entrenched in the his, the historical field. I was wondering if you could kind of tell us what you've been working on since the book came out.
1: Well, um, <laughs> I did write a uh, an opinion piece with a friend of mine who is a bioethicist, which we published in Inside Higher Ed, and it was published Great. in June, early June, and we said if you're a college administrator and you're thinking of opening the residence halls in the fall, think twice.
2: Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> that
1: gave, um, a number of reasons why we thought it was a bad idea to open the residence halls. And, you know, one, I hate to say, I told you so, especially when the, it's such a serious and dire outcome, but, you know, we basically laid out all of the things that have happened in the last few weeks, you know, students, they're young people. They they are going to interact with one another. They're not, even if you make all the double rooms single rooms, that doesn't help if you have students going from room to room to room. <laughs> and I, I've been astonished at how puritanical people are about this. I mean, young people have sex. And when they have sex, they breathe on each other. And guess how you spread COVID? You know, it just, it just amazes me that people are worried about, you know, how many chairs they're going to put in the dining hall and taking people's temperatures as they, you know, enter the gym. There are some other more immediate problems that need to be confronted. So anyway, I really do hope that people stay safe and that college students are, are start to take care of one another. I mean, I think that's College students don't care what the administrators say. I mean, that's one of the things that, <laughs> that we wrote in the op-ed is that um, since the beginning of their being students, they established their identity as students by breaking rules. The, the, the identity of the student is to do the opposite of what the administration tells you to do. So to think that they're suddenly in 2020 going to start obeying rules about not having parties to me is unrealistic. Um, but you know, one thing that I, I I noticed, uh, Michael Roth, who's the president of Wesleyan university was on another podcast and he, he was saying, this is only going to work if the students, if the students are the ones who enforce the social standards. So like 30 years ago, people smoked in classrooms. Well, maybe 40 years ago, nobody smoked in the classroom when I was in college. Um, and people, but now if somebody was smoking in a classroom, somebody would turn around and say, could you put that out?
2: I agree. You
1: know, or, you know, we can all think of um, driving before seatbelts and certainly um, the way that people began to practice safe sex after, you know, 50% of their friends died in 1988, people do get serious, but it has to come from within the community. So my hope is that the college students themselves will say, you, you really need to put a mask on, or I'm not going to go to that party. If you go, don't come back to my room. You know, that these things have to bubble up from inside, or, or I just don't think they work.
2: I would agree. I, so I, I've, I've, every student I've seen on campus has wear a mask, and it is not because we're telling them, because as you said, they wouldn't care if we did.
1: Well, that's good so to hear. I, yeah. I think
2: that would be, but that's an interesting point that it is up to the, the students are going to have to be the ones to really champion that effort. I think so. I can't speak for every campus, only the one I'm on, but.
1: Yeah, we have oh. so few students at Rutgers, I, I I, can't really say, but everyone I've seen is wearing a mask. Um, that
2: sounds very interesting. I'd be interested to see if you do a follow-up a few months mm-hmm. from now, considering yeah, what's well, going on. So
1: We talked about, and a lot of people have asked us You know, how would this be different if there's reliable one day testing? How would this be different if there's a vaccine, but the vaccine only works, you know, X percent of the time and only X percent of the people take it? So, yeah, there's certainly more to consider.
2: Great. Well, thank you very much for talking with me today. The book is Living on Campus, an Architectural History of the American Dormitory by Carla Yanni. Thank you again.
1: Thank you very much Brian. It was it was a lot of fun to talk about the book with you.
2: Oh, same here. And thank you for listening. Thank you and have a great day.